If you would, to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14, we're going to continue our story about the Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea. And as we learned that these pictures are really pictures in the Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea of God's redemption through Christ in our lives. I want us to, to see something here before we begin. I want, us to remind, I want to remind us that <clears throat> Scripture makes it very clear that the parting of the Red Sea was not just some small miracle. I want to ask you this. Was the resurrection of Jesus a small miracle? Was the cross, the act of God's Son to pay for our sins and be able to be punished for our sins a small miracle? Absolutely not. So I'm going to encourage you that this picture in the Old Testament of the Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea was no small miracle. First, I want us to, to see, whoops, let's go back. I want us to, I'm going to, I'm going to try and point to this if I can, okay? I think we can do that. I want us to see that scripture says that they were actually trapped at the Red Sea. Now, many people in our day and even conservatives are among the ranks that are suggesting that this miracle was a small miracle, that it can be explained by simply a strong east wind pushing some waters back. Granted, they've actually estimated 63 mile per hour winds to try and explain this miracle. Now, even the skeptics are going this route because they realize that there is that the, the parting of the Red Sea impacted an entire nation and they continue to celebrate their exodus with their parting of the Red Sea being the, the, somewhat the conclusion of this exodus. And they celebrate it in the Passover. And this feast, they're constantly reminded something must have happened in the history of this nation for such an observance to be carried out for over 3,000 years. And so in their scientific explanations, they say that right around here, there are some lakes in which the Israelites were supposedly trapped. But in no instant, in either of these cases, would they be able to be trapped. Even if they were to come down to the very, to this portion of the, the north part of the Gulf of Suez, would they be trapped? They would be able to move north or south. They would not be trapped. Understand, not only were they trapped, but the Bible says that, a, that the pillar of cloud and fire acted as a plug, if you will, and it separated the Egyptian army from the, from the Israelites and kept them safe. Neither could advance upon the other. There had to have been some sort of narrow gap anywhere from several hundred yards to a half mile, however, that would have kept the Pharaoh's army from attacking aggressively and killing or capturing the Israelites. And none of these in the north part of Egypt, on the eastern part of Egypt or in the northern part of the Suez would fit that description. We also learned that they had left, excuse me, that there was a wall of water to the left and a wall of water to the right. So no matter how this explanation is given, they discount this wall of water. Scripture is clear. Several times in Scripture it says that there was a wall of water to the left and to the right and that the waters congealed, that the waters stood firm like a pillar. And with any explanation, none of this happens. They then suggest that this wall of water is more poetic. May I suggest something to you? 
that in a historical count, we generally do not use figurative language. If we want to look for figurative language, we look for poetry. Now, if you were to look in your Bibles, chapter 14 is the historical account. Chapter 15 is the poetic account. But it's in the historical account that we find this description of a wall of water to the left and a wall of water to the right. Then it says that they were out of Egypt, that they had already left. And the only way in which this could happen is if they had crossed the Egyptian border here. So under any of these lakes and the tradition here of crossing the north part of the Suez would not work. They would still be in Egypt. And then lastly, we learned that apparently Yamsuth means sea of reeds. But can I suggest to you that Suf means reed. It's translated reed in some portions. It's translated, we saw last week, as seaweed. Seaweed enveloped Jonah's head as he sunk into the waters of the Mediterranean Sea. So it could be reed or it could be seaweed. It also can mean end. It's generally used this way in a verb, but can also be used this way in a noun. <clears throat> and I want to, just to give you an illustration, if I were to hold up two fingers, I would say that my two fingers are the end of my arm. And many scholars suggest that the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba would be the two ends of the Red Sea. So they would be called the sea ends. Now, I, I'm, I'm emphasizing this because Scripture is very clear with regard to where this sea is. And if this sea is deep, not just three to ten feet deep, I mean, how, how can they drown in three to ten feet, but rather very deep. How deep exactly, we don't know. The Gulf of Aqaba, that I'm going to suggest to you, is almost half a mile deep. But listen to these scripture passages that help us identify where this Red Sea is. Exodus 23, 31, it says, I will establish your borders from the Red Sea, Yam Suf, to the Sea of the Philistines, the Mediterranean. So wherever it is, here is the Mediterranean up here. And if this, the Gulf of Aqaba, is considered the Red Sea, then it would be from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean as a east-west border. And then it goes on and says, and from the desert to the river. The de this, of course, would be the desert. The river would be the Euphrates River much further north. This would be a perfect description of the borders of, Egypt, uh, excuse me, of Israel. But if we were to take the lakes or even the, Su uh, the Gulf of Suez as the, west the western border, it would not fit concerning the description of the borders of Israel that they would occupy in Canaan. Numbers 21.4, it says they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. Here is Edom right here. They were here and they needed to go around Edom. So they followed the road to the Red Sea. They didn't follow the road this way to the Red Sea. They followed the road south to go around Edom. If I were to say that I'm on my way to Washington, that rather on our way to Washington, we took I-95, it becomes clear that when I say Washington, I'm not referring to Washington uh, I'm not referring to the state of Washington, but I'm referring to Washington, D.C. 1 Kings 9.26, it says this, King Solomon also built ships at Ezion Geber, which, by the way, is here. 
He built ships at Ezi and Geber, which is near Eleth in Edom on the shore of the Red Sea. Ezi and Geber is on the shore of the Gulf of Aqaba. So I would suggest to you that this is the sea that God parted. There is no point in this sea, this gulf, that is anywhere close to three to ten feet. At, at a beach called Nuiba, which would be right about here, if you can see that, crossing it this way, there is what they call a land bridge. It's at least half a mile wide. To the north is thousands of meters deep, and to the south, the same. But it is only about 800 or so meters or half a mile deep there. The ingress and egress would have been about 7% of a slope and made it so that carts could travel. Now, again, the reason why I'm getting into this is because Scripture is clear that an amazing miracle had happened. Now, I mentioned last week that for each of us, there is one exodus. There is one deliverance from sin that God has given us. We have been set free by the cross at our conversion. We have the spirit dwelling in us. We now have the gift of eternal life given to us. And now we're empowered to be able to serve and follow Jesus as the son of God. And to actually please and honor him. Not in our own strength, but in the strength of the spirit of God in us. So we have one exodus, but we can have many Red Seas in which the enemy is destroyed. Now, I mentioned to you last week that a rescue plan means that God or someone takes you from a bad situation to a good situation, not to a worse situation, but to a good situation. And I'm going to suggest to you that a good rescue plan, in fact, a great rescue plan includes destroying the enemy in the process. This is what we have both at the crossing of the Red Sea and at the cross. The enemy was destroyed. So I'm going to read through the passage that we're going to be looking at closer today. We're going to start in chapter 14 with verse, with verse 13. Chapter 14, verse 13. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. It says this, answer, Moses answered the people. Remember, they're grumbling, and did you bring us out here to die? He says, do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? I want you to underline that. We're going to come back to that. Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And he uses his covenantal name there, I am Yahweh. When I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them. So the angel is in this glory cloud. Coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. No one obviously is going past this cloud. 
Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry, dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last night of the watch, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud. Now understand, as they're moving through this divided sea, we have the Israelites crossing, now reaching the far side of the Gulf of Aqaba. The pillar of cloud then stands between them and the Egyptian army, which is in hot pursuit. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw them into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And may I add, again, right? You can kind of hear this, again, ugh. Oy vey. Then the Lord said to Moses, sorry, that's, that's, an, that's a Hebrew expression. The Egyptians wouldn't say oy vey, right? Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, their servant. I can guarantee you that this army did not drown in three to 10 feet of water. All of them died, including Pharaoh. None, none survived. Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian around 100 AD, uh, latter part of the first century, writes that he had record that there were 50,000 um, soldiers that were in Pharaoh's army following them, every single one, whether that's a true statistic or not. I mean, it, Josephus was almost 15 year, year, 1,500 years removed from the incident, so it's simply tradition that he is speaking of here. Regardless, every single soldier and chariot, including Pharaoh himself, did not survive this event. The enemy was thoroughly crushed. I want us, though, to go back to verse 15. And I want us to look at that question that the Lord asks Moses. Why are you crying out to me? Do you not think that that's strange? That God would say, Moses, why are you praying? I mean, come on, God, isn't this a good thing? Moses is praying. He's praying. Come on. And yet there's at least a tacit rebuke here. 
Now, if you don't believe that, just look at the very next sentence because it's contrasted with something else. He's saying, why are you crying out to me? You need to move on. Why would God do this? Why wouldn't God say, you know, Moses, thank you for your heart. I appreciate you praying. I appreciate you crying out to me. Now, I'm not saying that God wasn't truly uh, delighted in the fact that Moses was seeking him, but there is something wrong here. I want us to look, first of all, at this word found in verse 13, that in the King James, it says, it reads this way, fear not, stand still and see. The NASB words it this way, do not fear, stand by and see. The NIV says, do not be afraid, stand firm and you will see. Literally, this Hebrew word means to stand still, but figuratively, it means to stand firm in your faith. And we can see both of these words and how they're translated, both figuratively and literally, in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, I'm going to give you two quick verses. God tells Moses to do something, to go to Pharaoh, and it's the same exact sentence that he tells Moses, the commands that he gives him, and it's this, get up early. He's speaking to Moses, get up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh. Now, what does he mean by that? Stand before him, stand still, don't move. Up, oh, I saw that finger, don't move. No, Moses, don't. come on, you're ruining it, don't move. He's obviously not saying that. What does he mean? Stand before Pharaoh, means to stand there and confront him. Don't move. Don't waver in your faith. When you speak my words, believe that they will happen. When you tell Pharaoh that I'm going to be turning, that the Lord is going to turn your Nile River into blood, I need you to believe that, and I need you to be convinced because this is what I will do. And on two occasions, God gave him this command, stand before Pharaoh, confront him, stand firm in your faith. Why am I mentioning this? Because I believe Moses misunderstood what he was saying to the people. I think Moses truly believed that God was telling the Israelites, stand still, don't move. When in actuality, the NAV does a better job, stand firm. You're filled with fear. You want to flee, stand firm. Don't go anywhere. Stand there, and I want you to stand firm in your faith because I'm going to do something great. That doesn't mean that they were to just stand still, but stand firm in their faith. There's another word. At the very end of verse 14, the NIV trans <coughs> excuse me, the NIV translates it, you need only to be still. Be still. Now, the Hebrew word can mean be still or rest, but it can also mean to still your words or be silent. Hold your peace. King James translates it that way. Hold your peace, not stand still or be still, don't move, but let your tongue be still. I think Moses, again, misunderstood the very words that God had given him to speak to the people. And so I think we find Moses interceding, God, please do it. What are you going to do? We're waiting. We're waiting. We're waiting. God, aren't you going to act? Aren't you going to do something? And God very graciously, 
asks him, Moses, why do you continue to seek me like this? As if you should realize that there is something you need to do. So as soon as he challenges him with this, why are you, why are you crying out to me? He says, move on. Do you see that in verse 14? Tell the Israelites to move on. This word move on in the Hebrew literally means to pull up tent pins. When you're camping, you don't just camp for a few minutes. You don't camp for a few hours. You camp overnight at least. When we would go camping, we would hang out there for probably a week, maybe more, and we would have a great time. I'm, we would visit the White Mountains in New Hampshire, and we would go down past the Con, uh, Conway Highway, and we would uh, go into a, a campground, and we would hike the Presidential Ridge, and we would be there for at least a week, if not two weeks. We camped out. We stayed. We sunk down those tent pegs. God is telling them, pull the tent pegs up. What are you doing sinking down tent pegs? You, why are you settling? I'm about to do something amazing, but you need to do one small thing. Pull up your tent pegs. You need to be ready to move on. Do you remember when the Israelites came to the Jordan River? Now, this is 40 years later. Kind of resembles the parting of the Red Sea. But when they came to the, the Jordan River, God was going to stop the water several miles upstream. But here's what he said they had to do. I need the Levites who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant. There's two in the front, two in the back. I need them to start to walk across the Jordan. And I'm going to promise you this, that as soon as their feet touch the water, that's when I will stop the, the flow of the Jordan River. Now, can you imagine a Levite as he steps foot into the river? The water does not go down immediately because it's being stopped several miles and it's going to take a while for that water level to go down. So I don't know, if I were one of those Levites and I'm crossing that Jordan, as soon as I step in, I don't see the water receding right away. And I continue across in faith. I am not gonna drown. And sure enough, as soon as they stepped in the water, God began to hold back this, the flow of the Jordan. And by the time they reached the middle, it was dry. And they stood there as the rest of Israel crossed over the Jordan. You see, they had to take that step of action. There had to be some form of obedience God was looking for. I believe Moses did misunderstand. You know what? I'm going to suggest something here. I believe that God wants to part your Red Sea, whatever that Red Sea would look like. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But whatever it looks like, whatever it is, God wants to part that sea, but we need to move on. And if we don't know this, I'm going to, I'm going to suggest something here. That when we don't move forward and we just camp out and drive the tent pegs in, we become internally focused. The problem is not so much out there. Now the problem becomes in here. If your family doesn't move forward, they begin bickering amongst themselves. If a church doesn't move forward, there begins to be, 
there begins some division in the body of Christ. This is natural. We see a problem. God is not answering it the way we want. We're waiting, waiting, waiting. And before you know it, there's internal bickering. And God wants to deal with that and get rid of it. You can see it with the Israelites to begin turning against Moses. We're stuck here, Moses. What are you going to do about it? And they complain. And they be, there's division that starts to take place amongst the Israelites. Church, this can happen to us as well. We need to constantly realize we are moving forward. Move on, God told Moses. And as they move on, as these people are beginning to move toward the Red Sea, scary as that thought is, Moses, I want you to extend your hand and my staff. And watch what I do. And so Moses does this. So what were they to do? Well, they weren't supposed to just stand still. They were to move on. What was God going to do? He was going to part the Red Sea. So I want to ask you today, what is your Red Sea? What is that insurmountable obstacle in your pathway? You know, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it was them being thrown into a fiery furnace. They refused to comply with King Nebuchadnezzar's wishes. They were told, as soon as you hear the sounding of the flutes, and there's like a gajillion instruments, and once they're all blaring, I want all of you, King Nebuchadnezzar says, to bow down and worship this 90-foot golden image it was probably of him, whichever. He, I want you to worship it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego absolutely refused to do that. They're called out. Nebuchadnezzar gives them one more chance. Look, we're going to do blah, blah, blah. And as soon as that happens, I need you to kneel down and worship this image. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego confess. He says, great King Nebuchadnezzar, please understand, because we worship the most high, the one true God, we cannot bow to your God. We cannot do this. And I believe that if you throw us into this furnace, he will rescue us. But if he does not, then so be it. We will not bow down. They took that step. They explained. They stood firm in their faith unmoved by the circumstances, by this obstacle, death. They refused to succumb to it. They refused to listen and appease the king. And as, as a result, God rescued them. They stood firm. We will not bow down. We will not comply, even, even if it means death. We're not going to do it. We sang a song this morning, Jesus, you are enough for me. You know, I think sometimes part of that problem is that we don't feel that way. We don't feel that Jesus is enough. We don't feel that he can truly be the satisfier of our souls, that there's something more out there, the proverbial grass that's greener on the other side of the hill, the longing of our hearts. And we come to this obstacle and we're thinking, you know what, why sacrifice so much for this God that I cannot see 
I'm just going to compromise a little bit. And God is saying, stand fast, stand firm, and watch what I will do. But to do that, I'm going to tell you, you will need to take at least one step. And that one step is faith. He's going to challenge you to speak that faith. He's going to challenge you to act upon that faith one step. What is that one step? To see that obstacle removed. Because you see, to your one step, you're, you're, uh, you're aware of matching funds. I truly believe that in God's grand kingdom, this concept of matching funds does not work in any way. I want you to donate a penny, and if you can donate a penny, I will shower millions of dollars, not pennies. I'm going to do this. No matching funds here. I'm going to come through in a way that's far beyond what I'm asking you. One step of faith. Can you do that? One acknowledgement. Jesus, you are Lord. I surrender all. I will find my satisfaction and hope and love in you, God, and you alone. I'm taking that step. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it would mean their life, potentially. But God rescued them. Maybe it's overwhelming desire. Maybe your Red Sea is this overwhelming desire. You want something. And if push comes to shove, you might be willing to compromise some to get that something. You want it so badly. Jesus in the garden of Jesus in the wilderness. He knew that he had come. The very reason why he took on human flesh was to rescue mankind from their sin and their own personal destruction because of their sin. That's why he was there. And when he's in the wilderness, you know, three temptations that, were, that were, are recorded. And in one of them, the devil says to him, tapping into this plan of God. I'm not convinced the devil knew the entire plan, but he knew, hey, God sent his son to do something here, and it's, and it, and it's not for a vacation. And so he, he offers him, if you bow down to me, I'm going to give you the kingdoms of the world. Maybe just a thought that flashed through Jesus' mind. No cross, no need for death, no need for resurrection, no risk. I just bend my knee to the devil and he gives me the very reason why I came here. Shortcut. Shortcut to the promised land. Shortcut to that end goal. Shortcut to, to the very reason why I came. No need for a cross. No need for a resurrection. Wow, this is it. I can make the deal and we're done. Well, it doesn't work that way. No sins would be able to be forgiven. So much more we could get into about why that was such a bad plan. God, Jesus immediately recognized it. And he quoted scripture and he says, you shall, you shall worship the Lord your God alone. Scripture. And he shared scripture after scripture when he was confronted with these temptations. Maybe your, maybe your Red Sea is an overwhelming emotion. Have you ever had an emotion? Maybe anger from hurt, this overwhelming emotion, and it just begins to control you. It begins to pull you down the wrong path, and you can feel your feet sliding further and further, and you don't want it, but it's pulling you there. How do you stop it? Overwhelming emotions, hurt. You just 
someone says something to you and you just want to say something so sharp and put them in their place. But really, what you need to do is step into their place. And you need to be able to see life at least a little bit from their perspective. Because hurt people hurt people. And there are reasons why this is happening. But regardless... We don't stoop that low. Regardless, we do not seek revenge. Regardless, we do not give him that zinger. We just want so much to do. We do not respond with anger and put it back to them. We don't want to hurt them back. How do you keep these strong emotions that want to control us at times in check? Now, I'm going to give you a recommendation, a suggestion. And I'm going to encourage you, please, if you walk away feeling that I just gave you a formula, you so totally missed it. The Bible says in Psalm 1-3, Psalm, verse 2, it says that he'll, this blessed man will meditate on the word of God day and night, and he will be like a tree planted by streams of water. Now, I don't know about you. I, I know for myself, I need to be led to that stream of water, the word of God, every single day. It's because I can't handle my emotions or my desires. I can't remove mountains. I can't, there's, I, I just don't have that ability to constantly speak to the mountain to be removed and it's removed. Though Jesus promises us this. Every day I find I need my tank refilled. Every day the devil wants to assault you and bring you to that place where you are filled with fear at your Red Sea. And the only thing you can do is complain. The only thing you can do is say, God, where are you in my life right now? And when we tap into this anger and we keep him at a distance, there's only one place to go, and that's further from him. And I'm going to challenge you at your Red Sea. This is going to require that step of faith. Pull up the tent pins. Take that step of faith. Surrender. Do you remember what So Ying said? Na Fao Ting, which literally means weapons down. But it's an idiom for I surrender. That's why they were saying this. That's what Jesus is looking for. Nafelting, I surrender. I don't understand this, God. I am confused. He, it's okay to confess that. I can't tell you how many times I've said to God, I'm confused. I don't know. I feel this way, and it's totally contrary to your word. Right now, God, I want to send out an email. Right now, God, I want to say something that's hurtful because I've been hurt. And God says, Zip it, Mike. Don't. And I have to find myself before the word of God. And just like water washing over me, washing that junk that the devil has spent 24 hours filling my heart with. You didn't know your pastor goes through that, did you? But I tell you what, when the devil wants to beat up on you, he is merciless. God needs us in his word and to just simply drink it in. You don't do it like a formula. Well, if I read the Bible, I'm going to have a good day. I truly believed when I first started reading my Bible, because I had, I had re read that passage and someone had preached, that if you just read the Bible every day, 
then God's going to bless you. You see, you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. Your leaf also should not wither. You will bear fruit in every season, and whatever you do shall prosper. Do you want to prosper? Sure I do. Does anyone here not want to prosper? Did anyone here today, you woke up this morning and you said, God, give me a really bad day. Absolutely not. We want to prosper. So, wow, I just have to read the Bible every day. And for several years, I was deceived by this. I was caught up in a rule. I was a little hamster on the treadmill. And God said, Mike, why do you spend time with me? And he began to root out that formula and just say, God, I want to spend time in your presence. You know, when Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, she didn't think by sitting at his feet, he would do a miracle for her. Well, you know, maybe, you know, should my brother one day die, maybe Jesus will raise him from the dead. Now that happened, but she didn't sit at his feet for that. So sometimes we, we want to pull strings. We want to kind of get in there with God. And okay, if I do this, you know, do we have a deal? Spend time in the word. To be like rain falling on the dry ground. You know, every day I have to go out to my flowers and check, or sometimes I just look through the window, are they beginning to wilt? Because I have impatience, and impatience, a day without water, they start wilting. It's like, come on, really? You little wimps? You need water every day? Seriously? My other plants need it twice a week. They need it like every day. <sighs> And so I have to go out there, and if it hasn't rained, I need to water it. But I tell you what, how nice it is, at least if I'm not doing paint touch-up, right, every day for it to rain at least a little bit to water my flowers, and then I don't have to do it. But every day, you're impatience, church. I'm not saying you're impatient. You're impatience, and you need that watering every single day, and you've got to drink it from the Word. Let it bring life to you. Do you need an obstacle removed? Well, it's going to require faith, not hopelessness. Where are you going to get that? Tap into the word. Let the truth speak against those lies so that your heart can yield before him. Every day, I just need the water of the word washing over me. I get deceived too easily. Your pastor gets deceived. He buys into lies too easily, buys into hurts too easily, listens to the enemy too easily. The truth brings me back to who God really is. Church, you serve a God who is so madly in love with you that he, he laid his life down for you willingly of his own accord to take your punishment that you deserved on himself. That is a God that has pursued you. That is a God who says, come, follow me. That is a God who says, do you want to see me destroy the enemy? Do you want to see me so that when you look, all you see are dead bodies on the shore? The enemy destroyed? Is this what you are needing for the Israelites? Absolutely. Then kneel before me. That's all I'm going to ask. Just take that step. That's it. Yield. Come before him in full surrender. Look what God did. It says when they passed across, the, when they passed over through the Red Sea, they passed through on dry ground. Dry ground, church. The wind dried up the water and produced dry ground. Pharaoh's army, however, was thrown into confusion. 
It says in Psalm 77, it says this, The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. And this is about the story of the Red Sea. The clouds poured down water. What? The skies resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Lightning. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your water through the mud. Excuse me, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You see, God threw them into confusion. It didn't rain like this on the side of where the Israelites were, only on Pharaoh's side. And their, their chariots couldn't make their way through the mud. Wheels began flying off. They began hitting rocks, no doubt. God threw them into confusion. God, again, was distinguishing between his people and the Egyptians. Not one of them survived. Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. Remember a good rescue plan? He doesn't just take you to a good place. He destroys the enemy. You can put your trust in the Lord today. You can lay your heart before him each day, every day and say, I surrender. And God's ultimate goal, and he says it several times here, is that he would gain the glory. God wants to part your Red Sea so he can receive the glory, whatever that Red Sea parting looks like. Pull up your tent pens. Take that step and watch him part your sea. Can you stand with me? Father, we confess before you today there are so many things the enemy uses to keep us from you. So many obstacles. And God, admittedly, we play into so many of these, God. I just ask you, Father, that you would strengthen our hearts as you now tell us to move on. Take that step. And I ask you, Father, regardless of what our Red Sea looks like, would you part it? Would you do a miracle? Would you gain glory for yourself? Would you amaze us with your amazing grace? Would you set us free? Would you move that mountain that it would be removed into the sea? Would you do that amazing thing that would bring you glory, maximize your glory, God, whatever it is? And I just thank you, Father, that your purposes are always so very good. Gain glory through this, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.